Welcome to the New Books Network. It is finally spring in Chicago, and um, I'm sitting with um, a colleague and friend from the University of Chicago Divinity School, uh, who has successfully, Shapoba, published uh, a book which is called A Revolutionary Faith, Liberation Theology Between Public Religion and Public Reason. Uh, the book has come out this year uh, in a very prestigious series um, edited by Hendel Vries uh, called Cultural Memory in the Present um, and at Stanford University Press. And uh, you are in an incredible company when I look at the other publications in this series. It's rather uh, incredible. So congratulations, Raul. This is first, I mean, a great accomplishment. Uh, because many dissertations are written, but not many are published. Uh, sometimes uh, it takes much more effort to turn a dissertation into an actual publication. Before talking about the book, I'd like to ask you to speak about your a little bit about your personal intellectual and spiritual journey and how how did you get to the point of, of writing this book and i think your personal story is relevant to this but so i met you several years ago when you came from university of notre dame to study at the university of chicago divinity school and i think we've taken also some classes together but anyway uh, to you well, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for, for this invitation. And and to be in this, you know, part is a very, very enticing experience to be in the New Books Network. Um, so I, I guess I, I say something about, about myself um, and uh, then we can get into this, this material as much as we want. But um, uh, as, as you know, well, I'm, I'm from Peru. Uh, I'm a South American. Who happened to end up be in the U.S. for for grad school? But you know, I was born in Peru, raised in Peru, um, and I really stayed in Peru until I was uh, 26 or so when I came to the U.S. for grad school. Uh, I, um, you know, Peru is a, um, a country which you know has many different features. Uh, one of them is a very you know Catholic country that's changing all of it. And there's also a country that uh, is very much marked by poverty and inequality. And I think those two things were always kind of in the background of my own uh, intellectual journey in, in some fashion. When I finished uh, high school, I wasn't really sure what to do. Uh, I knew that was, you know, somewhat, you know, still with, you know, uh, reading, writing, things like that. And people suggested I should become a lawyer, uh, which I seriously considered. And then I went to uh, the, the Catholic University of Peru, the, the Pontifical Catholic University of Peru, book as we call it. And um, I just started exploring, you know, um, kind of my gen ed classes in the first two years. And I became fascinated by the humanities, you know, history, sociology, anthropology, you know, philosophy, ethics. All these really was a new opening of possibilities for me. I, I come from 
uh, a working class family with a few entrepreneurs, but seriously no academics at all. And I mean, there were no many books in my house. So this was like a, a set of options that were not really available to me when I was growing up. And then in that process uh, of trying to decide what to do, thinking I'll become a lawyer, but being exposed to all these things, it became increasingly clear to me that uh, I wanted to pursue a, a, a path that, that was more fulfilling to my own intellectual journey. So I, I decided to study philosophy and I did my, my BA in philosophy and I did a master's in philosophy as well before coming to the US. And uh, this was a department of philosophy that was heavily shaped by uh, the traditions of phenomenology and hermeneutics. It just happens to be the case, as a matter of fact, that this department had students of Martin Heidegger, uh, Jacques Derrida, uh, Jürgen Habermas, Richard Rorty. It was a phenomenal department, uh, you know, in the midst of nowhere in some ways. Um, but I got interested in American pragmatism, actually. So I got this kind of education of hermeneutics and phenomenology. But what drew me to pragmatism was this kind of problem-solving uh, uh, approach to, to philosophical issues. Uh, and the interest, especially of William James in religion. And these started to become something very important to me, the dimension of the practical, the dimension of religion. And in this process, because Peru, and especially the Catholic University of Peru, was kind of the intellectual, I guess, uh, uh, cradle, the think tank of liberation theology in some ways, I became acquainted with the work of Gustavo Gutierrez. And then this became essential for me, a combination of this kind of philosophical education and interest in the practical and experience and the dimension of experience also and practice with uh, um, liberation theology, but also the question of social justice. So this is kind of the, I guess, academic background uh, that brings me to the U.S. You cannot really study religion very well in Peru. There is no schools where you can do serious academic study of religion. So I came to the U.S., uh, um, did the, the master's in Notre Dame, where Gutierrez was a professor, and I worked very closely with him, and then uh, uh, went to the University of Chicago to, to complete my, my theological studies. Yeah, and these trains, um, the philosophical and um, theological slash practical, are very obvious in, in your book, because uh, uh, what I find fascinating in the book is the way you bring together these various trains, right, and various voices. Um, you um, use uh, clearly the theological framework, uh, David Tracy, um, Hans Joas, but then you also at the end bring in the philosophical framework, uh, John Rawls and Montanus Bach. So since liberation theology is the focus of this book, um, would you mind briefly going over the background and history of liberation theology and how it arose and uh, how and why uh, you chose to write about it and why your approach is somewhat different? I mean, I noted earlier one difference that I observed is the variety of lenses that you use in the book, which is fascinating. Please. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I mean, it, it's 
there's so many ways to to get at, at, at this question, and there is a, a lot of good work that has been done on it. So what what I have done in the book um, a little bit, and, and I'll try to do here briefly, is try to uh, develop a typology of what I see as the main elements of all liberation theologies, if you will, uh, not assuming that these typologies, you know, complete or, or exhaustive, but I think that's something. And then what I do to, to be more accurate is follow the process of the specific trajectory of Latin American liberation theology and the specific work of Gustavo Gutierrez and some of the people uh, working uh, with him. Uh, and I think that's that's what I'll do uh, right now. I say this because, of course, there is plenty of discussions about the relation between, you know, Latin American liberation theology and black liberation theology or feminists, which is a form of liberationist theology. So I'll try to focus this on the case of Latin America, Peru and, and Gutierrez, just for the sake of accuracy. As I also say in the book, uh, trying to be, I think, too expansive about these also risks inaccuracy. And I discussed some of the accounts that I find a bit inaccurate in some occasions. So let me say something quick about the, what I take to be the four main features of liberation theology. Uh, one thing that I, 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 think, I think is essential is what I call the radical opposition to all forms of oppression. I think this in Latin America starts with a sense of the opposition to the oppression that people experience through poverty. But then this over time expanded to become a movement that thinks about liberation in terms of questions of gender, of questions of race, of questions of the environment, and, and so on. The second point is that I think that liberation theology uh, should be always conceived of as a movement of solidarity with uh, and among the oppressed. And this is a movement of solidarity that seeks emancipation, liberation. So a key element here then is what I call the agency of the poor, right? This is not just about people telling uh, uh, people experience poverty what to do, but it's something that really emerges out of the experiences of poverty and trying to organize and do something about them. This is in the context of Peru in the 60s and so on. The third issue that I, I think is very important uh, is that liberation theology, and this might be one of the key innovations, thinks about the question of poverty from a structural institutional perspective. So there is a, a, a shift, I would say, uh, from charity to faith-based advocacy for systemic change. This is, I think, a massive uh, difference with prior uh, uh, historical concerns with the poor and poverty, which is here we're saying, yes, of course, you know, the poor are blessed, you know, God loves them. There's also something about the systems we inhabit that can be changed. And this is also part of the, the uh, calling of uh, Christian discipleship in the context of Christianity. And the fourth uh, uh, element is that this is a theologically or religiously committed movement. And this is essential because the three first features I described can very much be uh, uh, found in other movements of liberation. But the fact that this is a faith-based movement, struggle for liberation uh, that is seen as a central component of people's faith 
it's a decisive uh, uh, contribution of liberation theology. And in the case of Gutierrez, which is the case I study the most in this book, uh, this is about how people uh, are able to articulate their experience of injustice and able to provide a response to them that is both faith-based but politically active in different ways, by the way. But I'll leave it there for now. Thank you, Raul. And what I find fascinating, uh, before I come to more questions about this, is what you say in the introduction. I mean, your desire to find a niche or a space in the conversation about social justice for, as you say, faith-based solutions or responses. And uh, you're, it seems to me you're reacting against a certain type of secularist exclusivism that doesn't seem to take, uh, let's say, theological ideas and responses uh, seriously. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I guess, yes, but uh, I'll add a caveat, right? Uh, because there is different uh, uh, traditions that respond to the perceived uh, threat of secularism. Um, and I would not like to be placed together with some of them, because one of the things that I try to do in the book is actually show that the, the historical process of secularization that, by the way, should be at least thought as a threefold process, as in the work of Jose Casanova, right? So differentiation of the spheres of, let's say, religion and the political or church and state, if you will, that's one element. And then you have the idea of the decline of religion and the idea of the privatization of religion, right? These are three elements of the historical process of secularization that don't actually come together very often, right? And this is important because liberation theologians, at least in my account, but I think the account is correct, it, uh, are not opposed to the first element. They're not opposed to the separation of the affairs of the church and the affairs of the state. As a matter of fact, they are very much for it. And I make a, an argument about this in the book because this allows them, and Charles Taylor has a similar perspective in, in his Catholic modernity, uh, allows them to disclose new, or I guess, features of the gospel that were there in principle, but were not, you know, really materialized in history because of the uh, um, uh, um, unification almost of the interests of the church and the state for centuries, right? So all this is to say that with liberation theologians, or at least it's my interpretation, I am not uh, uh, against secularization. And actually, I favor very much this separation. And in that sense, uh, uh, what this uh, uh, book is about and, and what this book responds to is to certain forms that assume that you have to completely get rid of religion in the public sphere to be able to have, you know, a healthy democratic living. And what the book argues, and I'm the only one, of course, there, is that it is very important to separate the first of the church and State, but that's very different from saying that religious people, people of faith, cannot participate of the political or the public sphere. And that's a very important difference, I believe. And to just mention maybe some school of thought that is very different, even though initially may seem uh, similar, this is very different, for instance, from radical orthodoxy or something like that, right? It's a very different take, just, just to 
for for the sake of a, a counterpoint. Yeah, uh, it means why, why, how, and why is it different? And just before you answer this, you said that religious people participate. I would have asked you immediately as religious people. Um, yes, yes, I yes. Yeah, go ahead. Well, let me start with the second question. Uh, um, the 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 question with uh, as religious people, I think, is crucial, right? And the book, especially chapter three. I hope is very clear in terms of how people uh, very obviously, very clearly reason through their participation in politics, right? Kind of in a process of really a spiritual discernment of what are the stakes, you know, and how they find in their tradition, in the Christian tradition in this case, resources to think about how to participate and organize in the political, right? By the way, I received a question about this the other day in, in a presentation about the book, and I found the question very, very interesting. This does not mean, even though the title may, may suggest otherwise, that all the forms of participation in the political are revolutionary in the sense of, you know, like starting a guerrilla or something like that. That was really very rarely the case, as a matter of fact. But what this kind of approach of liberation theology did is allow people to think religiously about multiple forms of intervention in the political. Many of them were just, you know, marches, protests, you know, organizing, community organizing, things like that. Very rarely this had anything to do with uh, uh, revolutionary uh, attempts in the more standard sense of the word. But my point is that uh, the, the key element here is that they think about this through the resources of the Christian tradition, and really explicitly, this is shown in some of my interviews and the, the material in chapter three, they think about this from the perspective of faith. They're not naive. They know strategy, they know community organizing, but you know, this is very important. On the other issue, I, I think that the, the, the key difference uh, is that there is no sense, uh, uh, let's put it this way, uh, often in radical orthodoxy and, and other uh, um, approaches that are very uh, uh, critical of, let's say, secularization, modernity, and all that, there is a sort of sweeping statements about what modernity is, or what the secular is, or what the Enlightenment is, and things like that. And I believe like liberation theologians, at least with theorists, or at least in my account, uh, are a bit more sophisticated in the way they think about these processes. So there is multiple modernities, there is multiple secularizations, there is different forms in which it affects different regions in different historical moments, and then there is elements of these that are worth rescuing, and there are elements of these that are worth criticizing. And making those distinctions is very important, right? So that you can say, as I did before, that you can favor the separation of church and state as something that is ideal and, and uh, um and fosters better democratic living in a pluralistic society like the U.S., but most of ours, right? And on the other hand, you can oppose the idea that you have to silence religious voices in the public sphere, which, by the way, very few people actually believe, even uh, modern philosophers, but there is that idea sometimes in the mind of some people. So that's, for instance, one example. The other one would be uh, uh, that I think that there is often an idealization of what the church can do as an alternative police, an alternative community. And I think liberation theologians are very attentive to the corruption of the church 
and then are able to be critical of the failures of the church without thinking that we have to just get rid of the spiritual community that the church represents, right? So what I see in liberation theology, and I think this is partly because they took in a very intelligent and critical way some of the intuitions of the critique of religion of Marx and others, is that they were able to incorporate some of the constructive elements of the critique without getting rid of everything. And I think that's uh, something I value a lot in liberation theology. Wow, where to start? I mean, uh, maybe we can start, uh, it's a good moment to talk about the critique or the of liberation theology that has come from, let's say, the traditional voices within the church, uh, represented especially by Cardinal Ratzinger and the two documents that were issued in 1980, what were the years? 84 and 86, right? And so can you speak or address some of the quote-unquote accusations or critiques that were brought uh, uh, towards liberation theology, uh, right? One is that it it's an uncritical borrowing of Marxist ideology that it politicizes uh, the tenets of the faith, uh, right? It, um, and that that somehow it reduces everything, uh, or it reduces the issue of poverty and inequality to uh, political issues. Um, yeah, yeah, gladly. I mean, this is uh, something that, that has been uh, very, very well studied, so I'll say something brief. And in some ways, the, the book is an attempt to respond to some of these critiques without necessarily naming them, although I think I refer to them at some point. But, um, I mean, <laughs> where to start? I think that anybody who's familiar with uh, Vatican documents, especially critical uh, documents that put forward a critique of theologians or, or ideas that are perceived, you know, as, as held by certain theologians or theological currents. Everybody who are familiar with this, I'm saying, knows that uh, these are often like very uh, uh, vague documents that rarely have citations, you know, rarely really focus on specific nuances and they just perceive a problem and utter a critique. So, in, in that sense, it's understandable. There was a fear, you know, that in these emerging, you know, social movements in Latin America, especially, there was a reduction of religion to politics. Uh, there were other elements of the critique. For instance, one, I don't remember in which of the documents, but this idea of the creation of this other church, the Church of the Poor, and that creating a sort of schism within the church and things like that, right? You know, as a general concern, Sure, right? The problem is that this is so inaccurate as an account of the work, at least of most liberation theologians. So one of the things I do in the book is try to show, I think, abundant evidence that this was not the case, that at least the people I study in, in, in my books were very clearly not reducing religion to politics. And as a matter of fact, not reducing politics to religion either. Right? They were very clear. That's a concept I use a lot in the book that comes from the work of uh, Charles Taylor and Hans Joas is the notion of articulation. 
what you see in the book and what you see in the work of Gutierrez and in the experience of the people of faith that are non-theologically trained but are shaped by theological ideas is this process of articulation of religion and politics. They're trying to figure out how being religiously honest, you know, being uh, in conversation, genuine dialogue with the tradition, they can also go beyond what at that point was the standard assumption of how Christians are supposed to participate in politics, go beyond that to make an intervention that was more active and more transformative. But all of this is reason in conversation with the tradition. It's never just saying, oh, you know, like I'm Marxist and I don't care about Christianity anymore. No, they struggle with it. And the articulation of that struggle is finding the balance between, okay, I have certain political commitments but I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in my church was essential. But in the process of finding this balance, in the process of articulation, there's also the development of critique. And there was a critique of, you know, certain historical complicities of the Catholic Church in Latin America with a status quo. That didn't mean, as the Vatican documents suggested, that they were trying to develop a new church or a different church. But it meant that there was a sense that the historically uh, um, the historical complicity of the church with colonialism, you know, with some of the abuses of the hierarchy and so on, was acknowledged, was seen as problematic, and there was a call for renewal and for you know owning in a more I guess uh, uh, um, authentic way the the core values of the gospel. Um, so I, I'll say that I'll say that that this was the 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 key difference, and I think in that sense the documents, uh, as often happens with documents, show a concern. But in terms of how much they are right on target, they were not. As I hear you speak, I think uh, maybe the notion of revolution or social change that liberation theology intended or expected was misunderstood and i think there are i i found several passages in the book for example in the chapter tradition in revolution page 41 where you provide very important qualification qualifications about what revolution means would you mind maybe citing the very last two paragraphs of 41 row or, or rather comment on them? Yeah, do you want me to read them? I can, I can read them quickly. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, just to hear your voice a little bit from the book. Very good. Okay, this page uh, 41. Um, I take this point to be of great importance in two respects. I'm commenting about, you know, how uh, Gutierrez balances uh, um, um, questions of faith and questions of politics, okay? So I, I return. I take this point to be of great importance in two respects. First, it stands as a cautionary remark. No effort to bring liberation to our historical realities should ever be understood as final. This especially powerful word of caution against ideological cooptations of the message of Christian liberation that attempt to identify this process with the agenda of some political project. Instead, this catalogical horizon makes the believer more contingency conscious and perhaps humbler in regard to the depth of the transformations that can be produced. Second, it is also an invitation to remain hopeful. No human action can produce the kind of transformation we would like to see realized. Yet, the believer may indeed have faith 
that, got, that forgot nothing is impossible. Such belief can become a source of nurturing and strength, especially in the context of repression and death that often accompanies the struggle for liberation. As you will see in subsequent chapters, such faith has been a key component in the activism of liberation theologians and lay people who have remained committed to the preferential option for the poor, even under the most dangerous, pressing, and disheartening circumstances. Thank you. And if I may just add the previous, a few lines from the previous paragraph, um, uh, where you you say, uh, the, say the, that alone makes liberation a worthy goal. The same should be said about the struggle against oppressive structures, the first level. However, in Gutierrez's view, that is not enough, at least not from a theological viewpoint. In Christian theological terms, true liberation is salvation in Christ, in whom all history is recapitulated. Therefore, the process of historical liberation of the struggles for emancipation and freedom should be inserted within the larger, single, but complex process of the divine creation and recreation. And this paragraph precedes what you uh, just read. I think this is a very important qualification uh, because it shows how political processes and a political involvement, as I understand, has to be always reconducted or retraced to, uh, let's say, the message of the gospel or the manifestation uh, of it, which was manifesting in Christ. And then you go back to the political action, so to speak. So it's a back and forth, as I understand it, uh, not a divorce between the two horizons so to speak yeah very much very much so or at least for you know the the work of liberation theologians right another thing that is important to me in this regard is that even though this is very true about people influenced by liberation theology this is the context i study in peru another very interesting feature of this is that because these people are committed to both you know, this uh, theological, eschatological understanding, but also to real transformations in the concrete, right? They were able to uh, uh, build, you know, alliances with people who were not theologically minded necessarily, but were very committed to questions of social justice and transforming the press, right? Now, what we all know, religious or not, is that, you know, often uh, social change is very hard to pursue, progressive social change often receives backlash. And I think one of the interesting things about liberation theologians that I mentioned in the, the portion I just read is that there was this background of faith and hope that nurtures, you know, the believer in the experience of defeat. And there's actually good research on this and how, you know, like this feature of uh, um, nurturing the, the faith and hope behind uh, 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 religious um, believers is immensely important uh, when one is facing backlash, resistance, uh, oppression, because these are hard, you know, pursuits. It's often one is defeated, you know, the idea that one once uh, executed, you know, laughed briefly or don't laugh at all. So I think that that's an important element at a very practical, if you will, even instrumental level, just having that background is important to nurture Mm-hmm. It's fascinating how you use uh, Paul Ricoeur and um, and David Tracy in I, I think that as a as a framework uh, to to talk about these uh, 
issues, right? To expand the meaning of tradition, but at the same time to preserve certain boundaries, right? Especially speaking, let's say, in a Catholic framework, right? Uh, now, it's as it's interesting to me that you, for example, you don't use the or, uh, notion of the the church as the body of Christ, right? Because then, when you when you try to address, let's say, systemic problems, my first question is, where do you start? Do you need another system to dismantle a system that is problematic? Uh, and the system that comes to mind is the church as the body of Christ, right? Which is, in a way, an enduring system, and uh, with with certain flexible and permeable margins. Uh, so my question is, why would why didn't you make more use of this, let's say, framework? This uh, the church as this as this living organism, which then can be is the starting point, let's say, of change, of systemic change. Could be, could be the starting point. Yeah, so the approach of the, of the book and, and the reason why I guess I, I, I don't focus too much on this idea of the, the body of Christ or the church has, has to do with um, my reliance, but also commitment to the idea that to think about social justice um, um, in the context of pluralistic societies like the U.S., but many of the societies of what we call the West, one has to focus on questions of the best uh, of the basic structure, and this is uh, uh, my reliance, if you will, on roles, but also my commitment to the idea that I think is right. And in that sense, the focus here is to try to understand, you know, the, the institutions that are the basic level of organization of society, the constitution, the judiciary, etc., etc., the economy, and how these become the conditions that shape everything else, including the church, by the way. So. Insofar as that's the focus of the book, thinking about social justice in such a way, the idea was to uh, think then with that focus about theological responses that are capable to address the question of social justice uh, uh, in such fashion. And the, uh, the uh, responses that I find in liberation theology to this matter are the ones that I think are, are more uh, productive and, and enlightened precisely because this shift to think about the question of poverty and social injustice in terms of, you know, basic institutions, in terms of social justice in the, in the Rawlsian way. Now, um, and for this reason also, the answers that come from the church will always remain insufficient, right? because these answers are not really focused on the question of how to think about social justice in pluralistic societies. It is true, as I argue in the book, that after Vatican II, you know, the 60s on, there is a shift to think about the relation between the church and the rest of society in uh, ways that are more productive instead of, of you know, uh, uh, antagonistic, right? But there is still certain theological and the trinal commitments uh, um, that don't really help from the perspective of social justice uh, um, to um, 
address uh, certain issues if you're coming just from the perspective of the church. We can think about issues like abortion or same-sex marriage or stuff like that, where certain theological commitments of, say, the Catholic Church are going to collide with questions of, you know, more general social justice. So I think that coming instead from a theological tradition that is more attuned with the question of the basic structure and social justice ends up being, I think, uh, uh, more productive. So I'll start with that. The other issue uh, um, I, I was uh, thinking about is that I find the notion of the church uh, as a concept uh, very equivocal. You know, what are we talking about when we're talking about the church? Are we talking about this? And let's just stay in the Catholic Church because it gets more complicated if you go beyond. But if we're in the Catholic Church, are we talking about the hierarchy? Are we talking about, you know, the production of teaching and documents from the church? Who represents the church? The bishops, the pope, you know, the faithful? There is a massive gap in terms of practice between the teaching of the church and the faithful that has been recorded for decades in service. So who is actually representative of the church? And then you have the notion that you brought up, which is the body of Christ, which is a spiritual notion that has, of course, some practical bearing. But all this just shows, I think, that the concept is very equivocal. And I think that equivocity is also unhelpful to think this, in addition to what I, what I mentioned. Now, one can, of course, uh, look kind of inward and see how some of this uh, um, work on liberation and social justice has to reform and change the church, of course. But that's a, a task that was different from the task I, I set to, to fulfill in, in the book. So let's start with that, maybe. Yeah, but then I'm still pondering or wondering what is the framework, right? I understand you you want to come to the conversation within a pluralistic context on the one hand. On the other hand, the question is where do you start to effect social system, systemic change? And this is my concern um, as someone who, let's say, is politically more to the center or center-right, uh, where do you start? Uh, how do you move? Uh, um, how do you effect that change without being wholesale, without uh, being evasive, right? And that's why it seemed to me uh, that maybe the, the framework of, of, of the church, the Catholic Church in all its pluralistic uh, embodiments and examples could uh, be a resource for this. Uh, but this being said, the, the, sec the, the last question is, how do you mediate, let's say, between like, a Christian faith-based, and I'm, I, I notice that you want to, you speak as a Christian theologian, not as a Catholic theologian, if I understand you correctly. Uh, how do you, if what is the bridge between, let's say, the political discussion, Rome and Martha Nussbaum, and the, let's say, the theological discussion, in a way, the first part of your book and the second part of your book? And it seems to me that bridge, correct me if I'm wrong, is what you call the preferential option for the poor. Um, and so I'm putting all of this on the table. Please speak, please pick the thread that <laughs> appeals to you. Thank you, Rob. No, no, this is very appealing. Thank you. Um, so I, I like your question. I, I, uh, this allows me to say a few more things, and maybe uh, I, I didn't you know, tap on, on all the elements of your prior question. But um, 
where do you start, right? And I think the, the, the question is a fair question. The question doesn't have a clear answer, of course, because uh, I, I mentioned at the beginning, right, that I'm very, uh, uh, I was very much shaped and still am by the tradition of, of American pragmatism. And one of the decisive elements of tradition of American pragmatism is that philosophy, or if you will, more generally, any theoretical inquiry uh, has to be problem solving, because what we do as a species at the end of the day is solve problems of different kinds, right? So in that sense, what I would say is that the experiences that people go through are going to bring up, you know, the need of where do you start or are going to just flat where do you start, right? So this may happen in your parish when you have an experience of a known sexual abuser, for instance, as a priest or something like that. That's an experience of injustice that you have to tackle and then people may organize and do things to do something about that experience, right? But you may also be part of, you know, a uh, work for a corporation and other people you know work for a corporation and you're feeling abused by the treatment and the wages that you receive. And you may start, you know, a union and organize, right? And this is going to be work that you do and compared to the prior example, probably less connected with other parishioners or people of faith, but you as a person of faith have certain interest in fair treatment as an employee. And you're gonna, you know, build bridges with people that may not share the same religious convictions. But here is, you know, the the, the situation where you see different uh, uh, contexts, you know, pointing to where do you start. So this is not a set agenda. It can be uh, within the church. It can be in other contexts. What is interesting to me is the process, a set of articulation of how you get to do something, right? And is the idea here is that it is this strong sense of, you know, a loving God, a God does not, a God who does not, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, enjoy injustice and, and is fine with this uh, kind of abuses, right, that becomes the deepest motivation to act in the case of the parish or to act in the case of the union. And then how these things go, these are creative processes that are not, you know, set uh, uh, or preset, if you will. Again, that's another, I guess, uh, uh, partial commitment to the tradition of, of American pragmatism is the idea of the creativity of action, right? Things unfold in ways that we cannot really anticipate. Many of these things happen because you have an intuition of the injustice and you want to do something about it. How that ends up, we don't really know, right? So let's start with that. But of course, there's plenty of work to do in the church. The problem, of course, with the church, uh, as, as we know, not that this is necessarily different uh, in the secular world, but there are different elements at play, is that the church has many incentives to avoid change, right? And I think the theological incentives to avoid change in questions like, I don't know, ordination of women or same-sex marriage or whatever it is, uh, become very difficult to, to uh, or these are, these are elements that uh, make it very difficult to produce change within the church. And I think that's why uh, very often the work uh, of people who are shaped by uh, uh, this liberationist idea sometimes goes beyond the church to produce a social change in other spaces. I have written about this, not so much in the book, but in other pieces that appear after, uh, because you have an issue here, right? The, the pursuit of social justice within the church at least currently has certain limits, and those limits uh, uh, are perceived by many people as, as very serious and, and sometimes something that you have to 
move away from to pursue change in other places or space. So see, that's about that. Um, I very much agree with, with, with your reading, and I think that's, that's the key idea, right? That the, the option for the poor, or, or to put it more, more generally, the commitment to uh, uh, social, progressive social change, you know, change that uh, pays attention to the most vulnerable in society, uh, is indeed the bridge between the theological and the political here. And that is perhaps to be returned to my example of, of unionizing, you know, and, and trying to organize to receive better treatment uh, from your employees. The idea here is that people are coming to this from different angles, right? I may come to this as a Catholic, you may come to this as a Jew, and this person may come to this as an agnostic, right? But we all have this very strong sense that there is an injustice happening here, an injustice happening to us, and we're going to do something about that. But you can also enter in solidarity, right? There is an injustice happening to them, and you can support that project in, in different ways, voting, you know, fundraising, uh, et cetera. So I think this is indeed the, the, the bridge that connects people. As I said in the book, uh, the connection or the, the bridge uh, establishes a connection that uh, marks certain analogies, but not identity, right? I mean, people who are coming from a deep sense of uh, God's justice, for instance, to this unionization process are not the same as people who are coming to this from, let's say, a Marxist perspective. But they can meet somewhere, you know, and I think that's something very powerful about liberation theology, that it was very effective at meeting people where they are and trying to, together, struggle for a better world. Uh, why do you even need the theological horizon in this conversation? Why not say, well, we'll have the pragmatist, we'll have Nussbaum's capabilities, we'll have Rawls, uh, you know, the, his entire theory of justice. Uh, why do we need any theological uh, nuances or concerns to add to this? Yeah. Well, I mean, you don't need them. Uh, I, I would, I would perhaps frame the question differently. I would say the fact is that you have them, right? People are religious. Many people are very religious. Many of us have theological frameworks operating in the way we inhabit the world. So I don't, I'm not making a normative claim saying we need theology to address these matters. I don't believe it. What I believe is that you and I and many others in the world may have theological beliefs through which we see the world. So my task as a, as a scholar, as an academic, is try to figure out how these theological frameworks are operating in the life of people and how, you know, these theological frameworks may allow us to inhabit a more democratic, a more just uh, world. But uh, in that sense, the question is not normative. It's a, it's a uh, from the ground up, if you will, approach, right? Theological frameworks do shape these realities. So my, my attempt is to understand how and how they could better shape them. See, my, and I see your position here. Uh, my proposition within this conversation would be say maybe, let's say, the theology, Christian theology has some resources uh, in two directions. And I'd be here to, uh, you know, I mentioned it before, I think, uh, especially the, the Catholic Church as this enduring institution, very pluralistic, very diverse, 
with variety of conversations going on could and which is an organism and a system right it shows that systems are complicated but systems are not inert systems are alive that's one i think resource maybe the second would be how you define the poor and that goes towards a question i had for you because you know in certain aspects of christian theology poverty is somehow an injunction it's a vocation it's you know the the ascetical tradition right so poverty might not be a problem but poverty might be a virtue now that is not to say i'm not making a simplistic argument to tell the poor well you're blessed because you're poor i'm not saying that but i'm just want to point out to the theological complexity of what poverty is right it's a theological issue as much as it is an economical issue and herein i think theology could provide layers to or, or th- that could help the conversation be more complex right sometimes in the conversations are just economical and we see that a lot of the problems uh, so the economical solutions are not sufficient right that uh, let's say fulfillment and improvement is more about let's say character and virtue and not about economics right that is not i'm not making a, an exclusive argument I'm not saying well. I no, I, I, I agree with you. I, I agree with you. I, I think these are, uh, 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 if, if you will, two different two different points of entry to the same problematic, right? So uh, what I'm saying uh, is that the way I enter this problem is I just start with a few facts, right? One of them is that people who happen to have theological backgrounds in whatever fashion, you know, might be more sophisticated as a theologian or less you know, but they have them. They're also people who inhabit the political world and these frameworks are shaping some of their decisions, right? That's kind of the way I enter this. And through that, I start exploring what theological frameworks are in place. I think this is compatible, slightly different from what you're saying, insofar as, you know, there's, of course, theological resources in the tradition, rich resources, you know, in the centuries of Catholic teaching, Orthodox teaching, Jewish teaching, and whatever. But <clears throat> an important... Just as a caveat, yeah, including yeah. The, 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 the rich trove of the treasury of the teachings about the, the social teachings, which I think are of incredible. Yeah. Of course, of course, <laughs> absolutely. But here is an important, I think, difference, which is that one thing is the existence of teaching, right? And one thing is the impact of the teaching and the experience of people. So, of course, you know, my uh, preference is to see how these things are operationalized in the life of people. Now, this is not incompatible with your point, because otherwise one, you know, risks the idea of just being led by whatever people do and not having a critical element coming from whatever tradition. So in that sense, I think we are on the same page. I think there are things in the tradition that might be untapped, you know, and can actually be used to, you know, rethink uh, uh, problems. And as a matter of fact, my argument in the book is that this is exactly what liberation theology does with the question of the poor, right? Goes through the tradition and untaps certain things that were kind of there, but not really materialized in the thinking of uh, 20th century Catholic theology, if you will. So I very much agree with you. 
my my only I guess caveat would be I tend to focus a bit more on the way certain things are happening in the experience of people because uh, otherwise you have certain ideas that are just kind of up in the air and have no no connection with how people live their lives of faith. That said, as I mentioned a moment ago, that is not like a, a, a definitive judgment because, of course, in traditions, there are certain elements that can be reactivated and returned and, and things of that sort. And uh, on the question of the poor, uh, I very much agree. I think one of the, the uh, a rich element of the um, uh, uh, Christian tradition, I guess, more generally, is to see the problem of poverty as a complex problem and one that also has certain elements that are aspirational in the sense of virtue, that there is something about a frugal life that is good for the life of the spirit. But I think liberation theologians, with theorists particularly, were very clear from the beginning, like never denying this element in terms of the formation of, you know, the self and, and the spiritual virtue, but always also being very clear that poverty as something that you do not decide for yourself, as something that's imposed on you by the circumstances is always an evil. Right, it's different to to become, you know, a Franciscan friar and choose a life of poverty as some form of spiritual fulfillment and being forced to be poor by the circumstances. And that distinction is crucial. Uh, and it is the second form, the force upon you, poverty, something that is always considered an evil in liberation theology and probably by, by most of us. And that's the thing that uh, um, liberation theology is against. I, I sometimes I put it, I don't know if Gutierrez has too. This is a uh, uh, approach that is uh, against poverty, but is for the poor, right? Or with the poor, but against poverty or something like that. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Raul. Now, as you were speaking, uh, another question came to mind, and it's related to a dear teacher we share, Professor David Tracy, Father David Tracy. And I, find it, I found it fascinating how you retrieve both his notion of analogy, but especially his, uh, the, the apocalyptic dimension of, of theology, right? And I think the way you use this notion of the apocalyptic to qualify and clarify the notion of the revolution, right? Because revolution is a very misunderstood and, and intentionally so sometimes, right? Because we in the United States see all kinds of revolutions going on right and uh, but I think relating the notion of revolution to apocalyptic is very fruitful can you speak about that a little bit yeah yeah thank you yeah I mean I think that perhaps the first thing I, I should say is that um, there is different uh, meanings to the word uh, revolution or to revolutionary right and uh, even though it's common to, to think uh, when one hears revolution about, you know, like armed uh, conflict and guerrillas and stuff like that, that's actually not necessarily the main meaning of, of the word. The main meaning of the word is related to radical transformation, right? And I think from that perspective, it's undeniable that what uh, liberation theologians uh, were able to accomplish, not only them, right? There are other things going on at the same time, but it's really a radical transformation uh, of the Catholic tradition and the way it thinks about uh, social justice. I think that that's undeniable. I think there is good evidence for that, some of which is in the book. Now, that said, 
even at that level, let's put aside, you know, armed conflict and all that stuff, it is still like, you know, a big ask, you know, the idea of radical transformation. And here is the, the thing that I, I want to explore in relationship to, to Tracy and, and his work on the apocalyptic, which is that one of the most interesting things about uh, Tracy, who, by the way, uh, uh, knew Gustavo Gutierrez very well, knows Gustavo Gutierrez very well, and uh, uh, drew a lot from Gutierrez's work for his own work, is that uh, Tracy is so good at reminding us that um, um, all these attempts, both to understand just the Christian mystery, the Christ event, right, but also to produce transformation in the world, end up being fragmentary, incomplete, you know, uh, always marked, as he says, uh, by plurality and ambiguity. And I think this is very important because this is also something that Gutierrez is very aware of, that perhaps becomes more clear about this over time, that this uh, uh, dream of radical societal transformation, right, that we're going to live in a more just society, is a utopian expectation. And insofar as it is a moral ideal, has power, but I think nobody, uh, or at least now, is so naive to think that this will actually be accomplished in this world. And then the apocalyptic expectation here is important because it introduces this kind of disrupting element, destabilizing elements like, hey, remember, you know, remember that this is not over here. Hey, remember that the Lord is coming again. And one of the things that, that, that Tracy does in his work, and I try to, you know, systematize a bit in chapter four of the book, is actually the, the idea of the second coming of the Lord, uh, which is one of the four symbols uh, that disclose the meaning of the Christian tradition for Tracy, is very much about the concern about the poor. You know, while we await for the coming of the Lord, what have you done with the poorest, the weakest of our uh, brothers and sisters? And I think that that idea is very powerful, very much in line with the concerns of liberation theology. But as, as in the passage we read before, a cautionary tale, right? It's like, hey, the work is worth doing. The struggle is worth fighting, but it's not supposed to be over here. And this, by the way, I think is a good lesson for religious and non-religious people. Because I think religious people are a bit more attuned to this idea because of catalogical beliefs, at least in the Christian and the Jewish traditions. But this is also true in the experience of people who are non-religious, because they will notice that the things they want are not really accomplished. So how do you develop a hope, you know, that is if you will, secular, but it still can account for the fact of failure and incompleteness. Well, religious traditions like Christianity and Judaism have some theological elements, the idea of the apocalyptic, to think about this. I'm sure that there are some uh, alternative resources in secular traditions, but the fact is that the incompleteness of the work of justice is always there. Maybe as a way to end, I'd like to cite uh, one passage from uh, the chapter Theology on the Ground, which is one of the the most fascinating chapters uh, where you actually speak to people who have been involved in different actions, uh, social change. Um, and one of the conclusions you draw here is page 118. Second, maybe I should ask you to read this uh, 118 uh, paragraph starting with second. Sure. Give me one second. And there we go. Okay, so I can read that, that paragraph. 
Okay. Uh, second, while their faith led supporters of liberation theology to pursue political engagement, there was ample room for disagreement and different political affiliations among them. The main reason for this is that most liberation theologists advocates understood that the political was only one area for the manifestation of their commitment to the gospel and the poor. Faith is always more profound and comprehensive than politics. Christians should create the conditions of the advent of the kingdom of God. But ultimately, the kingdom is always a gift, never something that can be produced by us. Uh, this is, I think, a very appropriate and beautiful way to, to end. Um, but before we go, uh, I'd like to ask you, what is what are you working on now? What is your next project? Well, I'm working on several things, but uh, I'm finishing uh, an article that I'm calling uh, Liberation Theology, a Rossian Read. And it's my attempt to expand on some of the, the issues that uh, I noticed maybe were not fully developed in the book and, you know, in, in presentations and such came up. Uh, especially the, the way in which uh, the Catholic uh, social teaching tradition uh, was not so much addressed in the book and kind of providing an account of, you know, what is important in that tradition, but at the same time, why I didn't feel so inclined to tap on that tradition to address some of those problems. Some of that I said in this conversation has to do about the basic structure, some of the theological restrictions of the tradition itself, but I think I'm trying to 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 work on on a piece that puts that on the table more clearly, and then but this will take more time. I'm working on the next uh, book project uh, that for now I'm calling uh, questioning Latinidad, and it's a book about the problem of of race, uh, gender, and ethnicity in the context of uh, Latinos in the U.S. especially. But one of the things I'm trying to do is trying to use some of the the framework for social justice that I developed in this book to think about this question, trying to navigate, you know, the, the sometimes the, um, the way in which these conversations tend to be a bit like identity politics focus and trying to expand a bit the conversation to think about justice in a way that incorporates, of course, issues of racial and, and gender injustice but uh, also allows to build, you know, communities beyond that and coalitions beyond that to think about justice in a more comprehensive way, which, by the way, also includes religion in a way like the argument I'm, I'm presenting here, but shifting a bit the subject. So those are, I guess, two projects I can think about right now. Excellent. Okay. Thank you, Raul. Que te vaya bien. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. Thank you.